Welcome back to the Unchanging Education Podcast with me, Dan Clemens. Why don't I start off with taking a really, uh, you know, wide lens, big picture view, um, teacher-centered and student-centered pedagogies as these two rival or competing approaches or schools. And I've got a, an admittedly patriarchal kind of lineage for both and I think that this will maybe help to uh, structure things going forward and clarify a little bit. So we might say if we think about student-centered philosophy which is the dominant modality today um, I want to suggest the great-grandfather is Rousseau and the grandfather is Dewey and the father is Freire. And then for teacher-centered, which is ultimately what I'm advancing here, the great-grandfather would be Locke, as opposed to Rousseau. The grandfather would be Bagley, who I'll talk about next time. And the father would be Rife. As opposed to Freire. So I'll come back to that and, and touch upon it again, but I wanted to situate that first. And I also want to make specific mention, I, I talked about Rife a little bit in the previous podcast, and I'll, I'll be I'm kind of working towards that. Eventually I'll get, uh, you know, to, to focusing on, on Philip Rife more. But I was um, quoting from an essay about Rife by Bruce Ashford. So I just wanted to make that note. And I also wanted to um, go a little bit more in depth on two other podcasts that have been, uh, you know, informative for me, certainly that I'd recommend, in that they explore some some of the same thinkers and same ideas that I'm discussing here. Uh, I'll mention, interestingly, or um, you know, coincidentally, both of the podcasts I'm going to mention here, talk about for a few minutes, were both released earlier this month on the same day, on August 4th. The first was from the Andrew Claven podcast, uh, He and he talks about Lippmann, and this is actually how I... Uh, kind of discovered Lippmann, who I'll be discussing again later, uh, later this season. Um, just, just as know, we are in uh, episode two of season two. So, Clavin at, at the outset there is talking about an unprecedented, serious situation uh, of the establishment's collapse, and he puts this at the feet of the what we might call the mature generation or the, the parent class, the, you know, the adults, the grown-ups. Um, you know, as he puts it, the leaders who are responsible to pass on um, to, to you or to, to students tradition and wisdom, specifically he notes the West, Western tradition or the wisdom of the West. And we might think that I mean, in this context, I'd be more focused on teachers, and we could say how teachers have, as he says, utterly abandoned their post. 
and that there's a collapse or an abandonment. And this would probably be seen as a virtue on what, in pejorative terms, could be called the regressive left, that uh, collapsing or abandoning, um, you know, Western tradition and wisdom, that this is a virtue, that it's a good thing. And it certainly seems that education is the main institutional thrust, that it is the front line of um, of a new political ideology or a set of ideologies. But they seem to manifest most directly, it seems, in education. The other podcast I want to talk about is called the Life of the Mind podcast. And it's an episode basically talking about Dewey, and, uh, or, uh, I mean, really, they're talking about Dewey for the most part. Um, but uh, directly, they're talking about a book about Dewey. It's kind of a, a critique of Dewey. And certainly uh, setting up, or at least participating in this duality of student-centered and teacher-centered, that Dewey's goal is educational social reform. It's important to keep in mind. That this idea of you know reforming um, or, or otherwise remaking, reimagining, and I'll get to some other R word R words here. Uh, versus a, a, a teacher-centered view, which the, which they discuss, and which would be to order the self towards the good, right? The self towards the good, rather than um, you know social reform. And they, they touch upon this problem of how what ends up happening is molding students to the reformer's will. Again, rather than um, ordering the self and directing them towards the good. And this, to me, really speaks to, you know, probably the, the biggest concern I think people in general have about education today, which is this problem of you can frame it either in terms of indoctrination or as re-education that we focused on what to think. This is a familiar you know, um, contrast of what to think versus how to think. So uh, not a re-education, but a, a real education is in how to think. And it is not indoctrinating. It's something more like free inquiry. And they go a little bit deeper into some other specifics about teaching. And something that we're going to see again and again is that this emergence of student-centeredness as a, as a newer, as a challenger ideology and eventually as a kind of a hostile takeover ideology is probably best understood in terms of, in terms of negation as a negative idea that more than anything it is against teacher-centeredness or wants to just not do what teacher-centered does or to do the opposite or to undermine it somehow. So it would be student-centeredness in this sense and Dewey in particular would be anti-didactic against this two-part the teacher teaches the student and the student learns from the teacher. It would not emphasize content. For example, this um, progression of learning to read and reading books and then eventually reading great books something like a, a, a great books curriculum and 
this is because, you know, when, when you're getting into reading books and reading great books and when there's a focus on content, there's almost certainly going to be this um, depositing of tradition, which it would be against. So, so anything that participates in or leads up to depositing of tradition, again, student-centered Dewey would be against. Instead, Dewey and the student-centered model will be in favor of what it would call hands-on learning, active or participatory learning, um, engagement in the learning process. These are all terms that the, they used in their discussion. And that it would be both experiential and experimental. And that there's a focus in Dewey and student-centeredness on contemporary and ephemeral works. Again, the focus is reform, but there's a lot of other R words. To me, that contemporary and ephemeral, right? things that are right now, but not necessarily long-lasting, like short-term. Short Relevant and responsive are, are two of the words that you, you will hear a lot in education that probably don't really seem very politically charged. Uh, but in this sense, there is a kind of a, an ideological payload. Relevant, responsive, and again, using this, going back to this pejorative, re-education. And that it's for reform, and that that reform should be radical or even revolutionary. So I'm just, I'm using all these R words for social, sorry, for, for student-centered or for Deweyan. Um, again, going all the way back to Rousseau through Dewey to Freire. And these R's, relevant, responsive, uh, radical, revolutionary reforms and re-education versus the classic three R's that would be aligned with teacher-centered philosophy, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Okay. So I want to jump back now into the this kind of ongoing lit review that I'm trying to establish. And I want to talk about, first I want to focus on Gramsci, who I think I indicated at the end of the previous podcast that it's going to be surprising, I think, for most people to find Gramsci as this conservative educational figure. But, I mean, he, he is. Um, you know, like, this. this could be, you know, a matter of contrasting, you know, the, his, his earlier and his later thinking. But it seems that as much as he is a kind of a revolutionary Marxist, his views on schooling are just just different. Um, and again, a lot of a lot of intellectuals can can be paradoxical, right? They're not always uh, so straightforward to, to understand when we look at the their big picture. So Gramsci. So in terms of education, conservative and traditional are often synonymous, both meaning not, non, or even anti-revolutionary. And as much as Gramsci might favor uh, a revolutionary program and activism towards that, he would, in, in terms of schooling, 
again, schooling is kind of a, the formal manifestation of education, education being a broader um, phenomenon, that he would be in the inactivism, Rifian camp, despite his radical politics. So uh, I'll lead off with this quote here. It is the belief that any attempt at popularization must inevitably result in vulgarization, which leads some conservative educationists, I'm assuming he's saying some because he's excluding himself, it leads some conservative educationists to the conclusion that talk of a common culture being enshrined in a common curriculum is a threat to civilization itself. But here he seems to be saying that we can disseminate culture and maintain its potency. That this idea of, of sharing a common culture through a common curriculum is a good thing and it doesn't, it doesn't weaken culture. I think what he's talking about, how some conservative educationists think that if we try to take this some sort of cultural inheritance and pass it on to, like, not just to an elite few, but to everyone in a, in a, in a, in a common curriculum, that they're saying, well, that's just going to lead to vulgarization, something like a bastardization. And he's kind of saying, no, so he is... Um, he, Gramsci is in a way here making a defense of the, you know, of the, the common man, so to speak. And it is, in a sense, also, as we might expect from him, um, anti-elitist. So he's going to talk about um, how, this, how this works. Okay, so going, going, jumping to the next part. However... This belief that culture, and I think culture here is meant in Arnold's sense, or in, in an Arnoldian sense, of the best that has been thought and said in the world. That is a useful definition for culture. The best that has been thought and said in the world. This belief that culture is beyond the reach of all but a highly intelligent and educated elite commonly fails to make a necessary distinction between the different activities of A, creativity, creating culture, uh, that is of authors, composers, scientific innovators, philosophers, B, interpretation, interpreting culture, that is by performers, critics, teachers, and C, appreciation, appreciating culture, that is by the lay public, like the, the lay person, the average you know, citizen, having greater or lesser technical knowledge of the work in question. So we shouldn't think of, even if we have this sense that you know culture is, you know, the best that's been thought, said, written. All of these are necessary cultural functions, and that everyone can participate even if the level of participation is simply appreciation, that that is still, it's still culture, right? And so in a way, Gramsci is making the case for 
again, going back to the first quote here, enshrining a common culture in the common curriculum, that it's not, it doesn't lead to vulgarization. It's not beyond all but a, a highly intelligent, educated elite. As long as we make this distinction, right? We don't need everyone. I mean, you know, certainly there are going to be all types of workers, let's just say, you know, blue collar workers, they still need to be exposed to culture through education because throughout their lives, I mean, everyone is going to continue to at least appreciate and at times uh, interpret. And while it may be true that there will be, you know, there may only be a highly intelligent, educated elite that's actually creating or, or is, is operating at the level of cultural creation. But, I mean, that doesn't really matter. There is a, a, a part to play for everyone. Everyone can appreciate culture. Many, if not most, can interpret culture. And again, perhaps only a few can create culture in this sense. And in this sense... Bring this to, to TVSC. More appreciation and interpretation. Uh, for example, in K-12. Seems appropriate. With a de-emphasis on some kind of pure creativity. So this focus on creativity as something that everyone needs to be doing more of. For example, in K-12, this is a, an, very much an SC kind of idea. And that we need to de-emphasize things like, you know, interpreting and appreciating culture um, through some sort of inheritance, and through learning about it through curriculum. Whereas a, a new teacher-centered critique that in some ways I'm advancing here would say, no, actually we need to go back to now we actually need to de-emphasize creativity and re-emphasize appreciation and interpretation and that that still serves culture arguably it serves culture in in an even more necessary or vital way put another way a movement from a predominantly appreciative modality in students into a gradually more appreciative interpretive mode and then eventually and finally into free creativity, which probably won't happen until in university and even beyond. Maybe maybe really starting in graduate school, people start, um, you know, creating something new to contribute to culture. So, I mean, that would speak to a general teacher-centered type of program. Right, that, that again, starting with appreciation, moving into interpretation, moving into creativity, depending on how uh, you know how an individual develops through education and and through professional life as well. Okay, let me come back to Gramsci specifically here. Gramsci devotes considerable attention to education, among other institutions. Because even in the wake of fascism, schools are primary sites for achieving mass consent 
for social rule or for social reform. And so this is from Entwistle, I believe, talking about Gramsci or explaining Gramsci for us. And talks about the great Gramscian Louis Althusser, who argues that among the state's ideological apparatuses, as opposed to the repressive apparatuses, educational institutions are the most important. The school is the state institution par excellence that prepares children and youth for their appropriate economic and political niches. Okay. Let me keep going here. Gramsci-inspired writers on schools in advanced capitalism have, with some notable exceptions, taken education to mean schooling. Although many writers have engaged in a sharp critique of the role and function of schooling in terms of what Henry Giroux and I have called reproductive theory, there is considerable reluctance to reveal the inner tensions of schools, that is, the degree to which movements within schools have attempted to offer both resistance and alternatives to the dominant program of technicization and the systematic devaluation of formative education. So again, the critical pedagogy in many ways devalues schooling um, as some sort of formal transmission of content and knowledge. Um, but here's the part that I want to focus on. Indeed, there is considerable evidence that many contemporary Gramscians recoil on populist or libertarian grounds at Gramsci's call for a curriculum that brings forward some of the features of the old school of grammatical study of Latin and Greek, together with the study of their respective literatures. Talking about classics here and political histories. Gramsci extols the old school, admittedly reserved for a tiny elite, as a guide for a new common educational program. And this reminds me of a phrase that is important in, in TC, which is that the best education for anyone is also the best education for everyone. Or the best education for all. So, I mean, a lot of people, you know, intellectual scholars today who are Gramscians, they recoil that they're kind of horrified by this, um, by this aspect of his thought. Um, certainly, especially the, um, you know, the, the, the critical pedagogy types. Okay, continuing. Gramsci defends the old common school for its ability to impart habits of diligence, precision, poise, even physical poise. I guess that means something like posture. Ability to concentrate on specific subjects, which cannot be acquired without the mechanical repetition of disciplined and methodical acts. Again, this, this, this really flies in the face of some putting some super premium on creativity 
which Gramsci doesn't in this in a common educational curriculum. If one wants to produce great scholars, one still has to start at this point and apply pressure throughout the educational system in order to succeed in creating those thousands or hundreds or even dozens of scholars of the highest quality which are necessary to every civilization. So Gramsci has this, you know, really positive orientation and he's promoting this old school approach, even of, you know, grammar schools, Greek and Latin, uh, the classics, because uh, among other virtues, diligence, precision, poise, concentration, and that the only way to get there is to have a particular kind of schooling. But Gramsci's critical evaluation of the quality of the teaching profession in Italy, his place and time, has to be separated from his positive view of the function of teaching in the educational process. From his criticism of teachers as he knew them, Neither the young nor the mature Gramsci, so neither, and irrespective of any of his periods of writing, went on to pose a solution to the problem by concluding that students would be better left alone to teach themselves. Nor did this criticism lead to any weakening of his view that the older generation has an active role to play in cultural transmission. Because the teaching function was often badly performed, this did not absolve adults from their responsibility to defend the immature against the fortuitous impact of the environment by initiating them into the existing culture, what Gramsci called the enriched patrimony of the past. Okay, I'll stop here for a sec just to try to unpack a little bit of this. So, even if, or even though, teaching often isn't done well, that doesn't mean that we need to change the idea of what teaching is or does or what it should be. Or just because a lot of teachers might seem to struggle, especially... I mean, we think of, you know, moving through time and uh, the way that parenting changes. And, for example, parents might not want a, a kind of a disciplinary old school, you know, grammar school type environment. And, um, you know, they might really be enamored of, you know, much more, you know, permissive and creative free play of the mind uh, type approaches. But nevertheless... You know, Gramsci is saying, it's it, yes, it is really hard to do this thing of, you know, as being the older generation and, and engaging in this cultural transmission of passing on, you know, wisdom and knowledge, right, this great cultural inheritance. And, and it is very hard. And so it requires, it requires disciplined teaching as much as it requires um, disciplined studentship. But, yeah, it's hard. But it's our responsibility as adults. And 
it is going to help the next generation to, 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 to be and to do better. So it's, it's like we have no choice. We, we have to do it. It doesn't matter how hard it is. It's not an excuse for anything. Because of the things that they learn, not only through you know inheriting culture, but also through these virtues, diligence, precision, poise, concentration, that basically the, the, the juice is worth the squeeze, that the upside is so high uh, it, it almost doesn't matter how hard it is or how many teachers struggle with it and how much easier it would be to, to do something else, right? So he's, he's almost acknowledging, you know, this is basically 100 years ago, acknowledging this difficulty and this tension, but saying, you know, we, we shouldn't give in to this. We need to keep doing the hardest form of schools and, and teaching and learning. Okay. Picking up again. Indeed, because so much of the child's time is spent on, this is scare quotes here, abroad, in the world of people, in the world of things, so not in the world of ideas. Most of a child's life is not spent in the world of ideas, engaging in the life of the mind. They spend most of their time in the world of people and things, from which extra-scholastic sources he tends to acquire his values. This makes that fraction of his time spent in school subject to deliberate adult didactic intervention, much more important than is commonly supposed. It is important that, contemporaneously with his brushing against the natural and social environments, he should be put in contact with human history and the history of things under the control of the teacher. I'll, I'll, I'll keep going here. This conception of an active didactic teacher committed to schooling as cultural initiation is entailed by Gramsci's repudiation of spontaneity and autodidacticism with its denial of the solid virtues of order, discipline, coherence, intellectual sobriety. Okay, I'll stop here for a second. I'll pick up in just a moment. So because kids spend most of their, like most of their time is spent outside of school, right? We have to remember that. And it's in this world of, of people and things, not ideas. And so when they're in school, School needs not to be about people and things. Okay, this brings us back to, I've mentioned it before, the thermostatic view of education, which just means education needs to be balancing out the experience of what is not being received in the in the outside world, in the common culture, uh, family life, friends, whatever your life is outside of school. School has to offer something unique. And so he's suggesting that, you know, this teacher-student relationship uh, of learning something directly in, in, a, in a didactic sense. So this might be unfamiliar terminology, but didactic means something like direct instruction. It's strongly associated with teacher-centered, right? Didactic says you, you, a teacher is teaching 
something and the student is learning that thing. Whereas autodidacticism or an autodidact, this is someone, this is self-teaching, right? If you're self-taught, you're an autodidact. And it would, this would be much more student-centered. This would be close to the inquiry model, right? Where students come up with their own questions and try to answer their own questions and come up with their own answers through their own research. But he's even a hundred years ago, he's saying that this autodidact, this didactic direct instruction between teacher and student, it's actually even more important than people realize that even then a hundred years ago, people were starting to, again, student centeredness was on the rise even then. So he brings up some other virtues here, and I want to just tie that back to the, this previous point where he mentioned, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of connect all of his virtues, which I think are representative of TC virtues of a student. And again, thinking of education as at the end of your education, you should be a well-educated person. And how we define a well-educated person tells us almost everything we need to know about what that educational approach highly values. So he mentioned diligence, precision, poise, concentration. And then here, some, some other solid virtues. Order, discipline, coherence, intellectual sobriety. So that all aligns with didactic, direct instruction. And this is, this is what he's in favor of. And at the same time, he's speaking against this autodidactic approach, right? He's for didactic, direct instruction, cultural initiation, and this list of nine virtues that I've mentioned. Okay, so the opposite of this, the opposite of this cultural initiation is the encouragement of sensual libertinism and fantasizing. Instead, Gramsci insists upon the need for instruction and upon adult responsibility to nourish the younger generation towards maximum possible enlargement of its cultural horizons. And in the face of an environment whose impact is casual, fortuitous, chaotic, and capricious. So, obviously, he's saying that autodidacticism in failing to transfer, transmit, or initiate young people into culture has these features of sensual libertinism and fantasizing, which basically just means, you know, letting young people do whatever they want, following inclination. And in the end, he says... This creates an educational experience that is too casual and fortuitous and chaotic and capricious. Um, bad, right? Put another way, it leads to very bad outcomes. Okay, so it gets even more explicitly teacher versus student centered here. For it is the conventional educational wisdom that a spontaneous 
active pedagogy is liberal, appropriate to a democratic society, whilst the teacher-initiated and structured transmission of academic knowledge is dismissed as authoritarian, even fascist, in its implications for restricting freedom of thought and autonomous personal growth. So teacher-centeredness is under assault at this time, and in, in the same way it still is today. These are the same things that people who you know may seem to think they're on the cutting edge of educational pedagogy, um, this is exactly what they would say. Well, the structured transmission of academic knowledge is authoritarian and fascist. It restricts freedom of thought and autonomous personal growth. And this, this, free, this idea of freedom and personal growth, uh, I'll talk about more, but it all implies this growing therapeutic mindset that forcing kids to do really hard things is, there's no way to think about it other than cruelty. And it's, it's probably going to cause some sort of, um, that it's, it's going to be experienced as traumatic or it's going to cause you know, the, the repression of their emotions, which is going to lead to dysfunction, right? This fear of dysfunction through difficult or painful experiences against which the, the, the TC defense is that they, these are not necessarily painful, but indeed they're, they're painstaking. That education is needs to be exact and exacting. But again, he's, he's also giving more descriptions of his sense of, in my interpretation, this student-centered pedagogy, that it needs to be spontaneous and active. Rather, the spontaneous rather than structured. And... Teaching as concerned with transmission of information, which needs to be acquired by the learner as a cognitive resource necessary for critical engagement with the educated and well-informed adversary. An engagement with an educated and well-informed adversary, this is something we think of like a debate. You could think of it in terms of an argument, but let's say debate. So in this situation where you come up against, you know, where you have to debate a very smart, very well-educated person, well, in that case, wouldn't it be good to have a, you know, to have like a, a database or like a, a bank from which you could make these withdrawals, right? That you could, in, in other words, you could summon facts, right? Things that you know so well, that basically things that you've memorized, so one of the big critiques of teacher-centered education and one of the great, one of the motifs of this student-centered, anti-teacher-centered idea is this, at, at times, this seemingly insane crusade against memorization. I believe that education is totally uncritical in this in its own agreement with itself, that, yep, memorization is bad, get rid of it. And, again, um, 
one reason that we hope we hope that this isn't the explanation, but again, a painstaking, exacting education that is certainly not therapeutic, it's not letting people do and think and feel and explore in however they would want in some sort of spontaneous way. And so this this suggests Freire's critique of traditional um, or what I would consider teacher-centeredness, which is that it just treats students like a passive, like an empty bank account. And the teacher is just putting knowledge deposits into a bank account. And, I mean, I, I think it's... This is and this is a straw man, I would say. But this is all, again, it's there's an uncritical acceptance of this kind of idea. And I think even being able to push back, it's like, okay, so let's just say that you're learning things and memorizing them. But if you're able to recall things that you've memorized, you know, in, in a in a coherent way in the appropriate situation, there's almost no appreciation for the power of that. Right, so if you're debating someone and you've got, you know, like facts, information, knowledge, quotes, things that can be applied, it's it's it would be a very powerful thing. Or having to debate against someone who's got this vast sum of, you know, uh, memorized you know facts and information, and that you say, oh well, you know all this person is doing is they're just making withdrawals from the bank account of what someone else put in there. That is not going to win you the debate against this person as they trounce you. Well, all you're doing is uh, calling upon all the things that you've learned about in, uh, you know, beating me mercilessly in this debate, in this uh, academic contest of argumentation. Yeah, so what? Okay. The anonymous teacher encouraging spontaneity and autodidacticism. Again, teaching yourself through spontaneous activity, something like the inquiry model, which Gramsci criticized precisely because of its repudiation of the notion of cultural transmission. So... SC repudiates, you know, rejects that cultural transmission is a good thing. But I think the important point here is that student-centeredness is largely to be understood as a negative philosophy or a negative theory. Not in the sense that it's sort of pessimistic, but that it's defined by being against something, right? As a negation in a logical sense. That what makes student-centered student-centered is that it is anti-teacher-centered rather than rather than really possessing its own its own pedagogy it's primarily a negation of the other thing so while you think cultural transmission's good we think it's bad so while you want it to continue we want it to stop you want things to be structured well we want things to be spontaneous and unstructured etc etc where teacher-centered is much more positive in this sense. And it's easy for the charismatic as a kind of a character 
um, almost like a new kind of character that emerges in history for the charismatic to want to be, well, I'm a spontaneous autodidact. It's a temptation. I think that that's, that's what I'm getting from the subtext in Gramsci here. It's really spontaneous to let kids do what they want and to, to, to learn and to teach themselves uh, on their own. But it's a poor form of education. I should say it's a poor form of schooling. That that's how most people are learning. They're, most people are kind of figuring things out in the world. Again, they're they're in the world of people and things. You know, just trying to figure things out and make sense of things. But schooling has to be again this idea that thermostatic is maybe a confusing term, but you can just say that the experience of schooling should be unique. That here I am in the presence of this expert, this kind of master of a, of a specific kind of content. And I have this opportunity to be learning directly from them in this structured environment, in this structured way. Uh, you know, moving from one, well, one step, one stage, one module to the next. It should not strain credulity at all to argue that democracy, above all, is dependent on the well-informed citizen and is ill-served by schooling which eschews the disciplined transmission of information in favor of the alternative of leaving children to follow their own spontaneous dispositions. So, letting letting kids do whatever they want is not good for uh, for a democracy. It just it weakens it inherently. It is difficult to see the point of emphasizing the value of freedom of thought without also stressing the need to learn the cognitive repertoires which liberate thought. So I guess what he's saying here is, interestingly, there's no value to free thought without also having that which liberates thought. Okay. Um, but I want to make a... I guess that demands some further explanation. We can think of freedom of thought as something like inclination, right? The things that you have a spontaneous mind to do. But you also need, if your thoughts are in a sense too free and too unstructured, then more often than not, they're going to be confused, muddied, cloudy, that you haven't learned to articulate your thoughts in a way that are intelligible or comprehensible to other people. So you've got all these free thoughts in your head, but it becomes you almost you need to learn how to you know order your thinking in such a way that it conforms to the way that other people are familiar with understanding or, or receiving ideas and information. Otherwise, you've got this you know free 
thinking mind that continues to exist in in its own kind of world so it's the importance of a of a common shared vocabulary something like the scientific method is a great example of this right sure it's uh, it's like an it's an organizing principle but there's nothing unfree about it in in, in a it's almost paradoxical in the sense that it's actually the, the structure is what makes it useful so that's what he means by cognitive repertoires but that's not it's not explained here exactly what that is but that just means learning about systems and structures it's going to take freedom of thought that if it's just too free it kind of it's just it's unbound and kind of useless um i think painting might be the best analogy here right that there are all kinds of different great painters but you know painters who master this art of being able to re like reduplicate and um you know realistic painters someone like rembrandt that there's obviously you know there's a tremendous structure and a, a real sort of student of the game so to speak in terms of art right painting in this case but it's through that structure that so much of the freedom and creativity is able to be expressed i'm not really a, i don't really know that much about art you know frankly but okay so it is difficult to see the point i'm going to repeat of emphasizing the value of freedom of thought without also stressing the need to learn the cognitive repertoires which liberate thought so without these cognitive repertoires we're not able even to make a difference between say activists and arsonists right if you just kind of have this pure freedom that's just inclined to do what it wants to do versus when you combine that freedom of thought with these cognitive repertoires you actually get a higher expression of, of, of an even more liberated thought. He adds that to assume that the pupil is liberated a priori is foolish. This idea that this liberation of thought is something that they already naturally possess. He says, no, you, you need like freedom plus structure right the structure is transmitted or inherited and that is what produces liberated thought it's kind of a, it's, it's a complicated but an interesting distinction okay free thought is basically useless without structure okay but when you have freedom of thought combined with the structure then you get something better than free thought you get liberated thought okay Continuing on, letting kids set their own course is bound to be wasteful and destructive, no matter how much we may wish to deploy sophistries to elevate play to the level of art. Play is not art. Again, play here is like free thought. Art is free thought plus these cognitive repertoires. 
carnivore repertoires here, I mean, it really just sounds like basically everything that you learn. Letting kids just do their own thing is wasteful and destructive, he says. No matter how much we may wish to deploy sophistries, no matter how much we may try to convince ourselves that we're doing a great job as educators by letting kids do what they want, we're not. It's not true. Because we want to elevate play to the level of art. But again, art requires... Art requires something from you too, right? It's not just this pure free play. Like artists work extremely hard at their art, at their craft, right? They don't just, most of them at least, they, you don't just get a canvas and get some paint and it's too hard to do anything really interesting with it, right? So why, is, why should we not elevate play to the level of art? Because it lacks this cognitive repertoire, simply. So there's a stress on the importance of schools transmitting knowledge and academic skills. Conceiving schools for children in the essentially neutral mode of transmitting knowledge of truths already discovered, which would include, by definition, contemporary social and natural science, and those intellectual skills which are a necessary condition for recurrent adult education. Okay, so what is he talking about here with adult education and, and this essential, the essential role of schools in developing a kind of a foundation focusing on known knowledge, right, and truths that have already been discovered but also here he mentions skills. And so I think one way to think of this is that there's something about some free, spontaneous education. Um, again, where you're just constantly indulging your, your creative, your, you know, your, your just undisciplined thinking and, and feelings, emotions, passions, desires, so SC, education as a foundation, isn't going to help you later in life to change careers, to become a, let's just say, a dental hygienist. That's exactly the opposite of what they would tell you. They're going to say, well, I mean, if you just learn all this, you know, useless content knowledge and reading great books it's not useful in the world. So we want to learn real practical, you know, learning real things that are, you know, quote unquote relevant, that learning whatever you want to learn about is going to be more relevant and more practical in a strange way. It's actually the inverse is true. Because in this example, I'm saying too, let's see, later in life, you want to become a dental hygienist. You're going to have to apply yourself to learning boring stuff from a dumb book, right? So to speak. And so you're going to have to have this kind of disciplined approach um, where it doesn't really matter what if you really 
really want to do it. Maybe you don't really have a tremendous passion. It's just, um, you know, for whatever reason, market forces have indicated it, that, that, you know, that you just know that it's for, for whatever reason, a good opportunity, right? To re-educate, retrain and something, you know, for a new, a new career path. And even if you don't have a, some sort of passionate desire in order to do this, um, you have to know how to apply yourself to something in some kind of a structured way, right? That you dedicate yourself to the study of something. And so, and again, it's something that you may or may not really want to, but there's just a sense that you have to. So the idea here is that kind of a kind of a classic old school education gives you tons of exposure to just this. And you develop this cognitive repertoire. You develop, we'll get to this later on, but I'll use the phrase now, a regime of attention, right? That you develop this really robust attention span. You've got this cognitive repertoire and you know how to sit down and apply yourself to a book, even if it's not the book that you chose, that someone else chose it for you. And that may seem, like I said, this, um, this, this attitude, well, this is this boring stuff in this dumb book. Well, okay. I still want you to be well-versed in this boring, dumb book. If that's how you want to think about it, fine. I don't care. Right. I'm not going to say, well, go, go pick a different book that you don't think is boring and dumb. Nope, fine. Then read the dumb, boring book and and read it well, and be prepared to discuss it in a in a thoughtful way. Transmitting the skills and knowledge on which individual growth depended, and from which personal autonomy are ultimately derived, is to be preferred. Autonomy is a byproduct, not a precursor for a good education. So true freedom here is nothing like unlimited inclination. Any, any mature person knows that. And it's something that has to be baked into education because young people don't know that. Right? They say, well, I want to be, I want to be free. Well, just doing whatever you want all the time in, in terms of this unlimited inclination. That that's not freedom. That there's more to freedom than that. It's not obvious to, you know, young people. And autonomy, right? Kind of having this, like being in full possession of yourself and your own uh, choosing and decision making. It's a byproduct of a good education. It's something that you get later on in the end. It's not as though we start with these, the students that we meet in schools, that they already are in possession of autonomy and that we need to base our approach to education in such a way that respects and honors their autonomy. No, they're, they're still developing. They're earning and gaining this this thing that is beyond and greater than just freedom of thought. Everyone's got freedom of thought. Who cares? Do you have liberated thought? 
in terms of this higher expression where freedom meets this this cognitive repertoire in this regime of attention so in this sense again think bring it back to to a critique of sc kind of using leveraging gramsci in this pro tc uh, critique of sc we do not educate free children it's the wrong way to think about schooling instead through education they can become not just free but liberated in their thinking We don't educate free children that really through education, they become free. Something like that. Okay. So I'm going to stop here and I'm going to come to Bertrand Russell next time. I thought maybe I would have time for both, but I think an hour is a good way, a good spot to stop. Um, Okay, so I'll come back to Bertrand Russell's got some interesting things to say about education. And okay, well, thanks very much for listening. And yeah, we've just focused on Gramsci. And uh, yeah, I think that's, that's been great progress. So hopefully you've enjoyed um, hearing about this kind of paradoxical figure of Gramsci, who's kind of on the one hand, this radical Marxist, again, he's synonymous with uh, hegemony that's kind of one of his big contributions to the to the kind of marxist discourse and um yeah but he's he's a conservative when it comes to schooling interestingly so whatever exactly that means the implications of that uh i don't know in terms of how we how to you know weaponize gramsci as the radical marxist against people who want radical marxist schooling which even a radical marxist like gramsci would have been against um yeah i have no idea i haven't really thought through the implications of that so okay so i'll wrap it up and thanks for listening to unchanging education